Today's scripture is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 25, through chapter 20, uh, verse 16. It can be found in your pew Bible on page uh, 825, or you can also view it behind me. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard, too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is God's word. Do you want to know what the deepest longings of Jesus Christ are. What's in the heart of Christ, most meaningful of everything? If so, you want to look at John 17, where Jesus comes and he prays to the Father, knowing that within hours he's going to be nailed to a cross and breathe his last. And so he takes his heart to God. And in that prayer, you will see two things. 
won his passion for the Father and the Father's glory. And you will see his passion for you and for us. His passion for the church of Jesus Christ. He prays these words. Father, the glory that you have given me, I have now given them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Do you hear the heartbeat of Jesus Christ for his church? He wants us to be one, but just not one like everybody else. He wants us to be one like the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God are one. He wants our relationship with each other to be the relationship of love and self-giving revolving around each other just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit did among themselves. That's the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what that would look like today? The self-giving, the championing of one another, the lifting up, the looking out for, the peace, the unity, the oneness and vision, the listening to each other. That's what Jesus Christ envisions for the church. But there is a poison that has gotten into the church that sickens it. A poison that gets into us that can tear the church of Jesus Christ apart. It keeps the church from being what Christ would have it to be. And that poison is in you. And that poison is in me. It's called self-centeredness and selfishness. It's the me-first attitude that today's passage seeks to address. Let's pray. Our Father, capture us with the vision that Jesus Christ has for us. Lord, I know I have failed. We have failed. We thank you for your grace And I pray that your grace would be powerful over us today as we desire to look in the mirror, to see what you see, but to to find in your grace a forgiveness, a freedom, and a motivation to become all that you would have us to be. Lord, your spirit is the only one who could do this today. So we call upon you to enter into each of our lives precisely where we are. Call us to yourself. Call us to one another. Amen. This parable begins, For the kingdom of heaven is like... As you've heard before, the kingdom of heaven is both future and present. It is what God will one day make this world to be where he fixes the broken world. He reverses the curse in every way. But there's the kingdom here and now where God is seeking to do that through believers in Jesus Christ, through the church of Jesus Christ. So as he speaks today, uh, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he talks about laborers who go into a vineyard. 
And that vineyard is God's work in this world. And the laborers, whether they came at nine or six in the morning or at five at night, those laborers are us. And he has a message for us. He begins in the previous verse, the first will be last. And he concludes by reversing that, the last will be first. And that's what he's trying to get at today. Because the first are those who are me first. That it is about me and we are looking out for our own. And we see this attitude in the passage that just preceded it. In fact, this parable is specifically centered at Peter in Peter's response to Jesus' great presentation of the gospel. And so we just want to look back at these verses and see what was happening. If you remember from last week, Jesus had a conversation with a rich young ruler who wanted to get into heaven. He thought he could earn his way, and Jesus essentially brings out through his questioning, through, through what he's asked the young man to do, when he said, go, go sell everything. And of course, the young man could do that. He had something he loved more than God. He wasn't keeping the commandments. And then Jesus gives a, a little picture of the impossibility of the rich man to save himself, saying, uh, you can't, uh, it's harder for a rich man to be saved than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And so the disciples are getting the message, and they're like, if rich men can't be saved, why, why are we any different? In fact, they're the ones who are seemingly blessed. So who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it's an impossibility. We cannot save ourselves. We are sinful beings. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. But with God, all things are possible. He's saying salvation is of God. He saves us. And we know how Jesus saves us. And Jesus had been telling the disciples how he's going to save him. It was going to cost him his life. So imagine being Peter and the disciples at that moment. You just saw clearly displayed, I cannot save myself. There is nothing to do. That can save me. I am lost. I am under the condemnation of God. The righteous judgment of God I will sit under for eternity. There is no hope for me at all. It's like being surrounded by a fire where everything's caving in. There's no way out. You know the end will come. And then he says, but with God, all things are possible. And it's like somehow a fireman comes in and rescues us and saves us out of that. And what's our response that God himself comes down into heaven and he's going to save us? Because that's what Jesus has just said. Look what Peter says. Hmm. See, Jesus, we've left everything and we followed you. So what then will we have? I would expect a response to what Jesus just said is, to fall down at the feet of Jesus Christ, to start kissing his feet and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. You, I can't believe you saved me. I can't believe you did this. Your love is incomprehensible. Your grace is so wonderful. But instead, Peter says, uh, what's in it for us? He doesn't look at what Jesus had just said about salvation. He looks at what Jesus said to the man, if you give up everything. And he said, we've given up everything. And Peter isn't 
If you know Peter, he's not looking out for the other disciples. This is a a thinly disguised veil of his own self-centeredness. What's in it for me? If you were Jesus with Peter at that moment, what would you do? I mean, I would probably take him by the neck and begin to strangle him. Or at least I'd go and walk away. Or maybe I'd play off with Jesus and say, oh, you of little faith. But instead, Jesus says, yeah, there are rich rewards for you. In fact, you will receive a hundred times what you've done. Now, Jesus does that because he doesn't want to miss an opportunity to talk about rewards. Because he wants our hearts tied to the eternal things. And he says, store up your treasures on heaven, not on earth. He wants us to understand how vastly generous God is. A hundredfold. You think you're giving up something? He's going to give you a hundred times as best. I would love to invest in the stock market of Jesus. God is so generous. So Jesus doesn't want to miss that opportunity. But you'll notice at the very end, there is this very gentle rebuke of Peter. The first will be last. Peter, do you realize your attitude of me first, of self-centeredness, is going to place you last in the kingdom of God? And so now he's got a parable for Peter and any of us who are like Peter. And we see the same message because we see the selfishness coming out of those laborers who started at six in the morning. And that's what the parable says. There are laborers that the landowner goes out and he finds this pool of people waiting to work, similar to uh, what we see sometimes today in, uh, in California, in the field. And those who come at hear the message at 6 o'clock, they get called and they are excited. Anyone called to work is excited. They're living almost day to day. And they're called at 6 o'clock. They're going to get a full day's work. And so they they go. And then some come at 9 o'clock. And then they get some at 12 and 3. And then with one hour work left. And then, because the landowner wants to get clear the message, of grace and what grace means and that the kingdom of God works on grace. It is pervaded by grace and not works itself. He has the guy who comes at six sit there while they pay for the guy who came at five o'clock and they give him a denarii. A denarius. And they pays each person a denarius and they pay all those who came at six o'clock. Now, I'm wondering how many of us would feel like those who came at 6 o'clock. I mean, it doesn't seem fair. And that's the whole concept of God's kingdom. Not fair. It's by grace. But there's a reaction to them. And they basically say, it's not fair. We came, we came, and early, they came late with one hour left. These last, 
worked only one hour, you gave them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day, the scorching heat. We did so much and you give them the same. There is a reaction to grace. Why? Because it's me first. This is the poison. It's in Peter. It's in the story of the parable that Jesus is trying to bring out. He's trying to connect us to see, is it in each of us, that same attitude? It is the poison that works its way through the church and sickens it. And if that isn't clear in this passage, I'm just going to dip into next week's passage a little bit. And you'll see that in the next chapter, Shortly after this, it says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. So Jesus gives them the gospel, what Christ is going to do. And what's the response? Then the mother, the son of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. She said, what do you want? And she responds, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your kingdom. And The response of the disciples is when they heard it, they were indignant. Do you see how the church in its very birth, when it is racked by self-centeredness and it's about to destroy. Jesus has just given the gospel. And I guess the mother of the sons of Zebedee and probably John and James themselves are thinking not of the death of Christ, but they're thinking, okay, he leaves, so who's going who's gonna to get the power in the kingdom? And so they, she immediately vies for it when the disciples hear it. They begin bickering and fighting, trying to step over one another because there is selfishness. If this attitude remained, the church would never be even what it is today. Certainly never the vision that Jesus Christ has for that church. That same spirit of selfishness is in me. When I hear a preacher better than me, often from here, I'm jealous. When I see a Christian education program that has more things and the kids are more excited than here, I'm jealous. I'm not rejoicing in the goodness of those children or the adults sitting underneath them. I'm jealous that they're better than me. I'm jealous when I hear of a church thriving and growing instead of rejoicing that God's kingdom is expanding. I'm like, why why not us like that? Why can't we be praised like that? I left a church a church of Jesus Christ that I was a part of the body of because the pastor stepped on my toes. I didn't go to him and tell him, you stepped on my toes. I just left and went to another church. 
I have gossiped to my wife about people in this church. I have listened to gossip from people in this church about other people in this church. And though I frowned outwardly, I smiled inwardly. I have been self-protective when I have had tension with people. I have retracted and left them out there. Because there is this attitude within me too. So the question is, what's the solution? How do we change? What what does God, the work God have to do to change me? Not to change any of you that were resonating with things and attitudes that I've had. It's in the response of the landowner. And we see him saying three things. First, he says, friend. And notice that word, friend. As, as this man is grumbling against the landowner, he's complaining. He's critical. And the landowner says, friend. He still cares. He wants this man to understand. He wants this man to be able to change and take advantage of the grace that's throughout the kingdom of God. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The first thing we need to realize is God is more than fair. They agreed. One denarius. That's what a that's what a laborer's is paid for a day's work. They said down, essentially signed the contract. I'll pay you a denarius. He says, That sounds good. So he is fair. The problem is he's more than fair because he gave everyone else more. One thing we have to realize is some of us have gotten saved early in life. And we've grown up as Christians. We've tried to walk faithfully with God our entire life. We skipped what people think is fun in high school, fun in college. We sacrificed those things and yet somebody who maybe was a drug addict and an alcoholic gets converted, and they're celebrated. And we're sitting there like, we're not celebrating. We see somebody on his deathbed who has mocked Christianity his entire life. He accepts Christ, and he's going to heaven, and we've served our entire lives. And we think, God, maybe, you know, are you fair? But worse than that, what we're realizing is God's grace has reached out to us too. You see, it was God who went to every one of them and gave them opportunity to be a part of His grace. Every one of us is saved by grace. Not of ourselves. It's impossible with man, but it's possible with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, Jesus gave a parable to a woman who was in, in a, a Pharisee. And, this woman washed Jesus' feet with her 
or tears. And he gave this little parable, and the, the parable essentially was this, is he who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven little loves little. You see, those who become Christians and those who walk very righteously really are at a disadvantage in the kingdom of God because often we don't see how big our sin is. We compare it to others who get mounds and mounds of grace because we see the horror of their sin and we say, we we weren't that bad. We're at a disadvantage because we're going to love Jesus less. That's why the last are first because they love Jesus so much because the grace of Jesus is so gigantic to them. But the grace of Jesus is gigantic to each one. One of us and every one of us, we just have to get in touch with how deep our sin is and how hurtful it is to God. George Whitfield, the renowned preacher, spiritual guide and leader in the 18th century said this, I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach to you or any other, but I sin. I can do nothing without sin. As one expresses it, my repentance wants to be repented of and my tears to be washed in the precious blood of my dear Redeemer. George Whitfield was a righteous man, but he realized the heights, widths, and depths of the grace of God because he saw inside his heart all that sin. And though he might have been the one who came at 6 a.m., he saw himself as the one who came at 5 p.m. to work. We are all deep sinners. Are we in touch with that? God is fair to us, and he's actually more than fair to us. Secondly, he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me. And what we need to realize from this is we have to rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in the fact that God is in control. Because this world is God's. This church is God's. Your life is God's. He is the creator and we are responsible and accountable to him. Yet as C.S. Lewis brings out, we sit in judgment of God. He said this, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. Ah, for the modern man, the roles are reversed. Modern man is the judge and God sits under the judgment in the dock. Now, we see ourselves, we're quite kindly judges. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, disease. Uh, He's ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that God is on the bench, excuse me, man is on the bench, the judge's bench, and God is standing in the dock as the one being judged. And what I find interesting, is, and I really agree with him, is that we've had within our culture over the last 50, 60 years a lack of reverence for God, where humanity sits in judgment on, on God. 
critical of him, judging the way he rules. But we can see from this parable that it goes much further back than 50 years ago. As this one says, God, you are not fair. In fact, it goes back much further than that. For Adam says in his defense, it was the woman whom you, God, you gave her to me. She gave me the food and I ate. It goes way back that we sit in judgment on God. Who are we to tell God who he should give what to? Who are we to tell God who he can pour out grace upon? Uh, Let me put it this way. I would prefer God to be judged than you. And you would probably prefer God to be God than me to be God. In fact, as we look at Scripture, we have a God who's not only in control, but he's all wise. He knows everything. He is everywhere. He knows the past, everything about our past, everything about the future. He is the one that can put life together. He's the only one wise enough to put life together for everyone at the same time and perfectly fit it all together to move it in the greatest and best way. The question is, is he loving? Does he care? Because you can have a genius running life who you don't necessarily want him to be running life unless he is perfectly and fully loving of me and you. And that question is answered at the foot of the cross. Jesus, excuse me, Paul said in the book of Romans, if he gave his own son, will he not freely give us all things? Essentially, he's saying, if you look at the cross and see the love of God that he gave the greatest gift, is he now going to try to withhold things from you, the little pet things from you? No. His plan for your life, his plan for the church, his plan for everybody, whether it's the 6 a.m. or the 5 p.m. people, is perfect. And it flows from the same love that sent his son to the cross to die for you and me. The third piece of the antidote antidote, is in a statement. The landowner saying, Do you begrudge my generosity? Literally, it's saying, do you have an evil eye, meaning a selfish eye, against my goodness? I mean, look at what his message is really saying is, I want what they get. And if I get fair wages, they should get fair wages. That guy at 5 o'clock should only be paid for an hour. Are we jealous of what other churches have, or the Christians have? Then we are, simply, we are essentially saying to God, limit your grace. You are too generous. Limit it. Pour it out on me. But limit it in the lives of other people. It's attitudes I've had. It's an attitude I have now. What we need to do is get in touch with the generosity and the grace of God for us because he ends saying the last 
will be first. Those who come at 5 o'clock really are at the head of the kingdom. Why? Because they know the generosity of God. They feel the generosity of God. It is so great. It is what moves their lives. Not their selfishness, but the grace of God. And they celebrate the grace of God in such a way they want the grace of God in everyone else's life. Perfect example of the one who begrudges God's generosity is in the story of the prodigal son, the older brother. His brother spit in the face of the father, took half of the father's fortune, went out and squandered it on everything the father despises, finally comes back, crawling back when he's out of money and destitute, crawling back to the father. And the older brother watches the father of grace run out there, hug this muddy, filthy, smelly, sweaty son, take off his ring and give it to him, take off his cloak, put it on, and then let's say, let's have a gigantic party. Let's have the best party. We'll kill the fatty calf. That's the father's grace. The older brother doesn't want that grace manifested. And yet, it's offered to him as well. If we got the grace of the prodigal son, we'd want that given to everyone. The question is, how can we get that grace deeper and deeper into our lives? Because they preach the gospel. The gospel was preached to Peter. With man, it's impossible to be saved. With God, all things are possible. And Peter says, and what about me? The gospel was preached to the disciples. The the son of man will will go up. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be killed. He'll rise on the third day. And immediately they're saying, okay, what about... My sons. Yeah, what about us? We want the right. No, we want the right seats. Not enough to know the gospel and to hear the gospel. Not enough simply to get saved by the gospel. The gospel has to penetrate deeply, deeply into our lives and into our hearts every day so that we are bathed in the grace of God so deeply that we want it to flow throughout the church and we want to be conduits of the grace of God. It's what flips the selfish heart to become unselfish. Tim Keller talks about the gospel being like a coin dropped in a Coke machine. And I don't know if you ever had those experiences where you drop the coin and it doesn't It doesn't drop and you can't get your soda. And so you bang it and you bang it and you bang it and you bang it until it finally goes. And the Coke comes out. And he says, that's what we have to do with the gospel. We have to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. We have to keep living it. We have to keep banging it into our hearts. Jesus Christ has a vision for the church It is so beautiful. I hope we all have that same vision. He wants among us what he has among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The complete otherness. And he has given his life 
to bring that so we can have that with God, but we can have that with each other. And Jesus prays, and when that unity is seen by the world, they will know, Father, that you sent me, that you loved me and you loved them. See, the greatest testimony to the world, the greatest picture of the gospel is the unity and selflessness of the church. There's a poison that's in us. But there's an antidote. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ as we let it sink deeply and richly into our hearts. Bring yourself before the cross every day, every hour. Let the grace of Jesus Christ sink into your lives and flow through it. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. It's so incredible what you've done for us. But after we've been Christians for a while, it can just become words. Lord, may it never become words. May it always be a living reality in us. May we have the heart of George Whitfield that knows sin penetrates even the good we do. We thank you and praise you that you are forgiving of us and you paid the price for us. Amen.